I love that song. (laughs) Singing the beauty of the gospel. That's what we're here to gather, to be changed by, and to pray. Now, I'd like to lead us in prayer as we pray for the spread of the gospel around the world. This morning, actually praying for the nation of Saudi Arabia, as well as here in our own community through other churches around us. Uh, The Well Church in downtown Portland we'll be praying for today, as well as for ourselves. So would you join me in prayer? Um, God, I'm just overwhelmed at thinking about the truths that we just sang and hearing Your people here sing them uh, loudly and with enthusiasm because uh, for so many of us, those are not just theological facts. They come from hearts that are being changed and given new hope and life because of your grace to us. And so, God, we thank you for that. And I pray that people all over this world would be led to understand the truths of the grace that you have so freely offered to us and to them. And as we think of Uh, Many countries in the Middle East, particularly countries like Saudi Arabia, where there's so much uh, oil-fueled wealth, uh, but also so much active um, uh, cut-offness, so to speak, from the gospel, so closed to the truths of the gospel because of how entrenched uh, Islam is in that country and where uh, people uh, often receive uh, great personal threats and even physical harm and death if they convert to Christianity because it's considered a dishonor to their families and the faith. It is so hard for the glorious truths of the gospel to penetrate people in that society. And yet, Father, they are very open in many ways with commerce and with technology to hearing messages from other parts of the world, and I pray that the message of the gospel would be one of them. So, Father, we pray the gospel would spread far and wide in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and that um, Saudi men and women would have opportunity to understand who Christ is, Uh, not caricatures of what they think the gospel is, but the truths from Scripture. I pray that they would be um, spread very, very clearly, and I pray that you would give Saudi men and women, uh, the few who do know you, the boldness and the courage to be able to speak with wisdom, pray that you'd protect them, but also the gospel would spread mightily on the Arabian Peninsula. So God, glorify your name there. And God, much closer to home, we want to pray that you'd glorify your name here in our own community as well. We have a lot more freedom religiously in this country, uh, but many people are still very confused about who you are and the glorious truths about which we just sang. I thank you for God, for our bread box ministry that we've just been celebrating, over 30 families right here in our community who received very tangible expressions of love given generously, um, which is such a small echo of the gospel where you give yourself generously to us out of sheer grace. And we pray, Father God, through the ministry of this church, um, the faithfulness that we have to your word and uh, the generosity that you would move us to give even in this Thanksgiving and now Christmas season, that you would spread the gospel right here in Hillsborough very clearly to people who would understand that there is hope and they are loved because you sent your son for us. And God, I pray the same thing for our friends down at the Well Church uh, in inner northeast Portland. Uh, Thank you for Pastor C.J. Coffey, a good friend. I appreciate his encouragement and pray that you would encourage him this morning as their church gathers, I believe right now, to have their Sunday worship service. And we pray that there would be a, a great sense of your presence in that congregation and that you would Draw those brothers and sisters in Christ uh, closer together because they're closer to you and that you would use them as a church to make the gospel clear in Portland to many of their neighbors who are living a very different worldview and a very different approach to life. But Father, make your name great and glorious through the lives of that church. Just bless them this morning. And lastly, God, I I pray that you bless us to the same end. I pray that as a result of having been here together and been uh, under your word and in community and responding to you, that you would so reorder our loves and ambitions 
that everything that we do and say and everything that we are as a people would put you on display in a way where people in Hillsboro could see and sense how much you love them and how much hope there is and that you would move hearts to respond in repentance and faith and find eternal life. Jesus, it's for your great name's sake and because we love you and you deserve our greatest praise, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And thank you, team, for leading us in worship. Appreciate you guys uh, leading us well to sing the praises of God that he so richly deserves. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to take it and turn it to the New Testament book of 1 Timothy, where we are continuing our series through this New Testament book that we've titled House Rules, How the Church Displays Jesus to the World. That's what this book of the Bible is all about. And it was addressed originally from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, a protege, somebody that he mentored, who was left in the ancient city of Ephesus to tend a church there and help them fix some of their issues and problems. But by reading it, we learn about many things that relate to churches of all ages and all stages and at all parts of the world, including ours this morning. In the early 1940s, um, it was a time where World War II was in full swing. The uh, German Nazi armies largely controlled the European continent, but the tide was beginning to change, and an invasion of the continent was imminent. And during those years, the Allies geared up for Operation Fortitude. As a result of that, um, they amassed thousands of troops and tanks and other military hardware, um, airplanes and bombers and troop transports, all designed to cross the water and invade the mainland in Norway, a stronghold that the German army held. Now, Nazi intelligence officers picked up on all of this. They were listening into radio intercepts that were making it sound like the Allies were getting ready to invade Norway. They were collecting intelligence reports from spies that they had sent to England, all of which confirmed the same thing. The invasion of Nazi-controlled Norway was imminent. Except for one small detail. None of it was real. It was all a lie. The radio transmissions were fake, sent by the Allies intending for the Nazis to intercept them. Uh, the spies were actually uh, almost all double agents, deliberately misinforming the Nazis about the Allied military buildup. And even the tanks and the planes and the boats were not real. In fact, the ones that you're looking at up on the screen are fake. They are wood, balsa wood um, frames with canvas over them. And if you were to look closely at those pictures, you might even see some of the ripples in the canvas. And they put them out there in the fields for the benefit of any Nazi reconnaissance air uh, flights that would go over to try to see what the Nazis were doing. It was all a ruse. It was designed to create the impression that there was this massive troop buildup getting ready to head into Norway for one reason, and one reason only, that the Germans would keep a big part of their military hardware in Norway far away from the true landing site, which we all know from history, which was Normandy in France. And it worked. It worked. From a military perspective, Operation Fortitude was considered a success. The Germans left a significant uh, portion of their military strength in other parts of Europe, so they were not available to defend the beaches of Normandy when the real invasion came. Misinformation and misdirection is a very common tactic and a powerful weapon of warfare when you're fighting an enemy. And that's an appropriate way to talk about the second half of chapter 1 here, 1 Timothy, the passage Jordan read for us earlier. That's what we're looking at this morning. 
This book of the Bible tells us, we saw this last week when we introduced it, that the church is essentially a, a pedestal or a pillar, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that holds up the truth for everybody to see. And the truth is the truth of the gospel, the glorious truth that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our King. That's the message of the whole book of 1 Timothy. It can really be summarized simply by saying what a church believes determines how that church behaves. And that, in turn, determines whom the world beholds. And so there's this significant occupation in this letter, this New Testament letter, with how a church behaves, how we like organize ourselves and, and the kinds of things that we do when we're together and what our attitudes are. And we're going to really get into those details starting next week in chapter two. This first chapter kind of frames the whole discussion with this idea of why, why a false doctrine is so dangerous and why true doctrine or truth is so important. For a book of the Bible that is really focused on behavior, it has a lot of emphasis on belief because what we believe in the long run is going to determine how we behave. And so if we're going to do our job as a church of putting the glorious gospel of Jesus on display in a way that people see it and have an opportunity to respond, then we need to be really clear on what the gospel actually is. What is the gospel of Jesus? The word gospel just means good news, and we use it as shorthand. So did people in the New Testament. We just refer to the gospel as if we all always know what we're talking about. But it's actually important to pause from time to time and be sure that we're clear on what we're talking about because many people are unclear about the gospel. And that's not accidental. One of the reasons we are often unclear, or at least not as clear as we could be, on what the gospel is, is because we are at war. We're at war. If you're in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I actually want to start at the end of the passage we're going to see this morning and begin there in verse 18. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 18, the apostle Paul says to Timothy, this is the charge I entrust to you, Timothy. We'll get to that charge in a minute, what the gospel is. He says, I entrust this charge to you, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, Timothy's call to ministry, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Did you notice that language? It's pretty common language that the Apostle Paul uses on a regular basis. Uh, We are, as a church, at war. Life is a battle. Ministry is a battle. Except, there's a couple important clarifications to make. The war is extremely real. It's very real. But the war is not against people. Primarily, we're not fighting another nation, we're not fighting people, we're ultimately battling false ideas that obscure the gospel, and behind those false ideas is our true enemy. In his theological letter to this same church, the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul described this enemy in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, when he said, our struggle, uh, or sorry, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, it's not people that are ultimately the enemy, but against the rulers, the authorities, and the cosmic powers that are over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, make no mistake about it. If you are a Christian, you belong to this church, we are at war. There's a mission God has given us, but it is opposed. There is an active enemy. It's not people, although they are often his tools, but the enemy is Satan. And Satan, among other things, is an obfuscator. I use that word just because I've always wanted to use that word <laughs> in a real sentence. But what I mean is um, he, he makes things unclear, kind of like I just did by using that word. 
He, he, he muddies the water. He uses disinformation as a weapon of warfare as much as a real army would in a conventional military conflict. He seeks to confuse and derail and deflect attention from the Bible's message. You see, our adversary fights hard and he fights dirty. That's the point that, that the Bible is getting at here. And his goal is to do whatever he can. He'll use whatever means are available to him to thwart the advance of God's agenda in the lives of people. And one of his common tactics that the Apostle Paul was addressing with the Ephesian church in the book of 1 Timothy here was this idea of getting people so confused about the details of the Old Testament law because they were coming from kind of a first century Jewish context where people had grown up kind of reading the first five books of the Old Testament as the law of God. And he said, there's so much detail there that if I can get people so focused and confused on that detail, they'll miss the whole point of what the law was pointing to, which is our need for a savior. You see, it was, a, it was a misdirection tactic. And as a result of that, you see that he constantly employs mud and fuzz as weapons of warfare. And sometimes they're even more effective than bullets and bombs. If I can muddy the waters and fuzz the message so that it's out of focus, often he can render a church ineffective. That, that's why this, this false teaching was such a big deal for the Apostle Paul, as he's talked about several times here in chapter 1. Because those, those teachers who were teaching this stuff were getting people preoccupied with unhelpful and unnecessary details, that was like their specific situation back in the first century in Ephesus, they would, they would ultimately end up kind of missing the forest for the trees. That's how we would say it today. It's like, if I can get all these people who are all about the Bible to focus so much on the details of the Bible and look at every tree, and in fact, check out this branch on this tree, in fact, let's get into a big argument about this one particular leaf out on the end of one branch of one tree, and you're so focused on whether this leaf is light green or dark green and debating the theological merits of that, that you miss the fact that we're in a forest, and that's the whole point. And it was working. It was working. People could listen to these Bible teachers for years and years and take careful, copious notes, and at the end of it still have absolutely no idea what the Bible's message is. It's crazy, right? My head's stuffed with information about the Bible and I have no idea what the Bible says because it was a misdirection tactic. If I can get you focused, so focused on the trees, you'll miss the forest. It's so focused on the details, I miss the overall message. Paul had actually seen, already seen to it that two of these guys were removed from the church fellowship. He referred to them by name uh, to Timothy in verse 20. He says, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they may not learn to blaspheme. And the best way to understand what he's talking about there is what we call church discipline. He got a couple of these guys whom Timothy probably knew from Paul's past experience in Ephesus who were teaching wrongly and they were told repeatedly to stop and they refused to stop because they were in it for themselves. We already saw that last Sunday. And so Paul finally says, you got, I, I'm going to kick you out of the church. You're gone. If you won't use your platform for the glory of God, then I'm going to remove your platform from you. Go somewhere else. And so you're no longer welcome in the household of God. You need to leave in the hope that they would eventually come to repent and stop taking attention away from Christ. And he sends Timothy in to say, this is your job, dude. <laughs> Continue that work. Continue to confront the guys that are following their example. And if necessary, kick them out if you have to. Because misinformation is an old classic tactic and it's old and it's classic because it works. It works. Now the way it works can change from one situation to the next. Uh, the kind of misinformation you might employ is going to 
vary pretty widely depending on who you're trying to misinform. And so the way the misinformation tactics of Satan work in modern churches can often look different in details, but at heart they're the same as they were in the first century. If I can get people focused on the wrong stuff, get them looking over there, they won't see the real invasion coming over here. They'll miss the entire point of what God has put them on this earth to do. And misinformation is a particularly effective tool in the hands of Satan in areas that have been thoroughly evangelized already, like the USA, where in many towns there's a church on every street corner and everybody's seen crosses and everybody's heard of Jesus. It would be the height of stupidity for Satan to wake up, so to speak, one morning and say, I'm going to try to keep everybody blind to Jesus. I'm going to see how many Americans I can, can, can just keep ignorant of Jesus so they don't even know who Jesus is. Everybody already knows who Jesus is. That would be a fool's errand. He's not that stupid. So instead, what he'll say is, how can I misdirect people to think wrong things about Jesus? When I was thinking about this misdirection tactic, I remembered uh, my grandfather, who passed away a few years ago. He was the son of Italian immigrants. My great-grandparents are full-blooded Italians, met, married in Italy, and then moved to the U.S., where my grandfather was born. He grew up in the Midwest. And there was something that he told me several times as a kid when I was growing up and I was asking him about his younger years that always struck me as really odd as a kid. He would tell me that um, because he was the son of Italian immigrants, there was a lot of Italian spoken in his home. His parents were learning English, but it was very much a second language. But he was an American kid. He was born and raised in America, so he learned English from you know, his earliest years. And so he would tell me that as an adult, when he heard Italian spoken, he could follow it. Right? If he heard two native Italian speakers having a conversation, he could kind of follow along with what they were saying. But then he would tell me, I can't speak Italian, though. And that always blew me away, because as a kid, I was like, I, I thought of it as like a binary thing. It's like on or off. Like you either know a language, in which case you speak it, or you don't, and so you can't, you know? And it was weird for me to realize, wait a minute, maybe there's, maybe there's middle ground where people can sort of learn a language, but not really have command of it. And if you yourself are the son of, uh, or daughter of immigrants, or maybe you know somebody who is, you're probably familiar with that kind of thing. The older I got, the more I realized my grandfather's experience was very common. That yeah, he, he was sort of familiar enough with the mother tongue that he could recognize it when he heard it, and even kind of follow along, but he couldn't actually speak it. And as Christians in modern America, it's very easy for a similar kind of thing to happen to us when it comes to the gospel of Jesus. We recognize it when we hear it. Well enough that we can even follow along when someone explains, you know, how it impacts our lives. And we hear maybe a preacher on a Sunday morning get up and explain the points of the gospel. We're like, yep, that's it. That, that's what I believe. And, and we mean it completely because we recognize when we hear it. And, and then maybe even when somebody starts to explain because the gospel is true, therefore it ought to affect our attitudes this way or our actions this way. We're like, yeah, okay, I follow that. Like we can follow along with the conversation. We have enough familiarity with the gospel that we sort of get it. But then when somebody asks you, hey, what is the gospel? It's kind of like, well, I, um, you know, kind of like God and Jesus and stuff, and I, I don't have a clear, concise answer to that question. For some of us, maybe it's just that we've never actually sat down and written out a clear, concise answer. Like, we really do know it, and we just need to sharpen it up a little bit. But for many of us, maybe it's because we're familiar with the mother tongue but we don't actually speak the language of the gospel as much as we might think that we do. It's because we have an enemy who uses misinformation tactics. Now, just before we get into how this 
continues to work through this passage and what it tells us about the gospel. It's worth talking about how this works in modern day. What I want to do is, for the rest of our time together, just we have two more simple points. In light of the fact that we are at war and we have an enemy and we know what our calling is, it's to hold up the gospel as a church. The rest of this morning's message is going to consist of two points, and it's simply what the gospel isn't and what the gospel is and what this passage tells us about both of those things. Because once again, the misinformation tactic is very common, although their details were different. They were, uh, Satan was successful in getting a lot of first century people preoccupied with minutiae and details of the Old Testament law. That is not a problem many of us as Americans have. I've been a pastor for a long time. I've yet to run into a Christian who says, you know, I've been doing all my personal Bible reading in the book of Leviticus, and I just love it. <laughs> Can't get out of this book. It's just awesome, and I'm spending so much time in Leviticus, I never get to Jesus. Like, that is not our problem, Okay. And I'll admit it, I do my Bible read-throughs. I typically try to do one every year. And when I get to Leviticus, it's like, all right, here we go. Not gonna lie, not my favorite part of scripture, okay? By God's grace, he's teaching me how to understand Leviticus and I'm developing an appreciation for it. But like, we don't get stuck in that book. So if Satan is gonna misdirect attention away from the gospel in modern American churches, he's probably not gonna hold up Leviticus for us. It's not bait. So what is I want to look just briefly at three very common false gospels that are just everywhere in this country, and they're sold and marketed as the true gospel of the Bible, and they're absolutely everywhere. The first is what you might call the performance gospel, the second is the prosperity gospel, and the last is the therapeutic gospel. Just briefly, I wish I had an hour on each one of these, and we don't. So just briefly, let's get kind of our heads around what these things are. First, what we might call the performance gospel, or what we would normally call, uh, more commonly call in churches, works religion. An old, probably the oldest of these three. It's been around the U.S. for a long time, and it's there because it still works. It's the basic idea that the Bible's main message to us is be better people. Be more generous, be more giving, be more moral Like, be a better person than you are. And if you are better enough, I'm sure that's right, you can correct my syntax later. If if you are, like, enough better by the time you die, then God may say, hey, good job, you get to come in. You you get welcome into heaven. So it's, it's sort of a way of earning your salvation, getting enough good grades. And this is reinforced by all sorts of stereotypes in our culture, um, the, the most common um, cultural stereotype or, or image of Christianity tends to be Catholic churches, actually. And so you see this in movies and in books all the time of people just like going to these Catholic masses and, and being better people and, and admitting to priests that they're not good enough and trying to do better next time. And like that's their whole Christianity. It just continues to reinforce the message whether or not that's true or fair. It doesn't really matter for this morning. The point is like that's the message that's out there. And whether people acknowledge it or not, the assumption is often that's what Christianity is all about. And the Bible really is a bunch of rules to tell you how to be a better person, along with a bunch of stories of people who did a pretty good job so you can be um, encouraged by their example. You can emulate their example. So the Bible is basically rules and examples for you to follow to be a better person. But friends, the gospel is not a set of rules to follow that will make God happy with us, despite the fact that that's very prevalent still today. Another one that's very common, is what is called the prosperity gospel. 
It was all over the place, sometimes also referred to as the health and wealth gospel, different words for the same exact thing. A little bit more recent, kind of a post-World War II thing, but all over the place in America and in uh, parts of Africa and other places where Americans have exported their very bad theology. The prosperity gospel, in a nutshell, says, the Bible's main message is that Jesus will give you health and wealth and material prosperity. Like, that's, that's the point. That's the goal. God wants you to be rich and healthy and happy now. That's the point, the point of the Bible. And the key to achieving these blessings, attaining these blessings, uh, is what they call faith. You just have to believe that God will do that. So if you're sick or you're poor, then that means you don't have enough faith. You need to have more faith. And you demonstrate your faith usually by giving the preacher who's telling you this money so that God will give you more money. And then you fund his private jets and his multi-million dollar homes. And I wish I was kidding. Let me read you an excerpt from one of the most successful, humanly speaking, prosperity gospel teachers in America today, the aptly named Creflo Dollar. That's his real name. Creflo has a lot of dollars, too. Here's what he says. I, you're going to hear some Bible references in this quote. This is from one of his studies. Um, you're going to hear some Bible references, but, but see if you can detect where it's different than the real gospel. Quote, As the righteousness of God, your inheritance of wealth and riches is included in the spiritual blessings, parenthesis, that is spiritual things, close parenthesis, that the Apostle Paul spoke of in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Based on Psalm 112, verse 3, righteousness, wealth, and riches go hand in hand. You, Dollar says, have every right to possess material wealth, clothes, jewelry, houses, cars, money, in abundance. This is one of his Bible studies. He goes on. The Bible says that wealth is stored up for the righteous. Proverbs 13, 22, New American Standard Version. It's all in the quote. However, he goes on, it will remain stored up until you claim it. Therefore, claim it now. You possess the ability to seize and command wealth and riches to come to you, Deuteronomy 8.18. Exercise that power by speaking faith-filled words daily and taking practical steps to eradicate debt. Like God, you can speak spiritual blessings into existence, Romans 4, 17. Remember, doubt keeps silent, but faith speaks, end quote. <laughs> Where's mine? Good question. You're in the wrong church, my friend. <laughs> Praise God. I, I seriously wish I had an hour to pick apart every sentence which is rife with error. Even if you just look up the verses that are referred to there, you can clearly see how he's cherry-picking them, taking them out of context and giving them a totally different meaning than what's plainly evident. You don't need a theology degree to see that. But here's the point, guys. This isn't just some random huckster. This guy is a multi-multi-millionaire, and he's got zillions of people reading his books, tuning into his radio programs, and giving them all kinds of money. Somebody's doing that. People are believing this. It's prosperity gospel through and through. One more. Uh, it's what I, you might refer to, what I usually refer to as the therapeutic gospel. 
the therapeutic gospel. This is actually a really close cousin of the prosperity gospel. They overlap a lot. In fact, the same guys are usually saying both of them. The only reason I think it's worth mentioning them separately is that the focus on the second one is a little bit less on material wealth and prosperity, although it's there. But this is a really uniquely modern American perversion of the gospel of Jesus. The basic idea here is that here's the Bible's main message. Jesus will help you overcome your hurts and hang-ups. That's what he's all about. To fulfill your own dreams and to give you the best life you can possibly have right now. That last statement is a paraphrase of a best-selling book by a therapeutic gospel preacher who's also a prosperity gospel preacher, um, one of the best known in the entire country named Joel Osteen. His best-selling book, Your Best Life Now, consists of this quote. Once again, just listen. See if you can detect the differences. The good news is, stop right there, I'm going to interrupt my own quote. The word gospel just means good news, okay? Some of you know that. If you didn't, there you have it. Gospel just means good news, the good news of Jesus. So when Joel Osteen starts to say the good news is, he's talking about, this is the message, right? Here's, here's the good news the Bible has for you. Okay, let me go on. Quote, the good news is God wants to show you his incredible favor. Man, that's great, isn't it? He wants to fill your life with new wine, he puts in quote, but are you willing to get rid of your old wineskins? Will you start thinking bigger? Will you enlarge your vision and get rid of those old negative mindsets that hold you back? End quote. Did any of that sound funny, a little off, compared to the real gospel? You see what he's saying? Jesus wants to help you achieve greatness as you define it right now. Have the life that you really want and become unshackled from the things that are holding you back in this life right now. That's the message according to Joel Osteen. What this really is is just modern American secular self-help uh, power of positive thinking stuff with a few Bible-ish sounding words and images sprinkled lightly over the top of it. After all, Jesus used new wine and old wineskins as an analogy, so maybe I can co-opt that language and it makes it sound like this is what Jesus is saying. But it's being sold as the Bible's actual message. And sold it is. That book is a best seller. The gospel, friends, is not the promise that Jesus will help you be a better you, however you define what better you means. These are some of the common misdirection tactics we just see all over the place in our society. It's the performance gospel. Jesus just wants you to be better, so try harder. The uh, prosperity gospel. Jesus wants you to be healthier and richer, so trust him for it. Or the therapeutic gospel. Jesus wants you to get over your hurts and hang-ups and have the life you want. So free yourself from those bondages and let Jesus lead you to the promised land. That's what the gospel isn't. So the question, what is the gospel? What is it? When it really comes down to it, what is it? For somebody that's talked about so much and so many times in the New Testament, it's interesting that there's no one place in the Bible that explains, like it's the only place that explains it. And that's because there are many places all over the Bible that explain it. Sometimes it's explained at great length. Other times it's very, very brief. Probably the longest explanation, well certainly the longest explanation of the gospel is the first four chapters of the book of Romans. Four full chapters the Apostle Paul walks in meticulous, technicolor, high-def detail through the glorious truths of the gospel and what it means. And the entire book of Romans is built 
on that. That's probably the longest definition or explanation of the gospel. And the shortest explanation sometimes are just a couple paragraphs, sometimes a phrase, sometimes even just a sentence. And we find the gospel summarized in a single sentence right in the middle of our text this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at verse 15. The saying, or this saying, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. With one simple phrase, the Apostle Paul collapsed four chapters of the book of Romans into one phrase. Here is the message. This is what everybody needs to hear. This is the charge and the task. This is the gospel of Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And in those two words, we see the essence of the gospel. Every time it's explained, there's always at least four elements to it that put it together. It's put together different ways, but you can see the four elements the same every single time. There's a setting, there's a problem, there's a solution, and then there's a response that's called for. The setting is God, a holy God. The problem is sinful man. The solution is a saving Christ. And the response that is called for in biblical language is repentance and faith. Let's look at what this passage tells us about these things. The setting, God. God is holy, and we are accountable to him. He created us. He's a loving God, but he's also high, and he is holy. And as his creation, we are accountable to him. In verse 17 here, the Apostle Paul exalts one of several places where there's this brief little doxology of praise. He exalts the glories of God to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God to him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, did you hear any of that in the false gospels we mentioned earlier? You see, it all starts with God at the very center, and God never leaves the center of the true gospel, the Bible's message. The performance gospel, the prosperity gospel, the therapeutic gospel, none of them have a high and holy God to whom we're accountable. What they have is more akin to a cosmic vending machine floating out there in the sky somewhere, someone from whom you can get the goodies and the benefits that you want, and all you need to do is push the right buttons to get the right snack to drop out of it. In the performance gospel, the buttons you're supposed to push are following religious rules and being a better person. In the prosperity gospel, the buttons you're supposed to push are having faith by sending the preacher money. In the therapeutic gospel, the buttons you're supposed to push are freeing yourself from old, uh, narrow-minded mindsets and assumptions. But whatever the details are, it all amounts to the same thing. Here's how you get God to give you what you want right now. It's like he's a big vending machine, not a high and holy God to whom we're accountable. Secondly, the problem You see, we said the gospel is good news, but one of the most distinctive facts and and, and facets of the Bible is the good news is the fact that the bad news doesn't have to hold sway, meaning you can't have good news until you understand what the bad news is. Here's the bad news. We have a problem as people before this God to whom we're accountable. And the problem in a word, the Bible's word, is sin. It's sin. The Apostle Paul unpacks it extensively in Romans chapter 1. Here's just one example. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 says that people know who God is, but we refuse to honor him as God. In other words, the heart of sin is telling God to go take a hike. It's saying, I'm not under your thumb. I don't acknowledge your authority or your sovereignty. I reject the idea that I'm accountable to you. Sin means rebellion against God. 
So a sinner, according to the Bible, is any person whose actions, attitudes, or general heart disposition are contrary to the will and the character of God. When I do things that announce that God is not sovereign and king, when I have attitudes that crown myself as king rather than God, even before I've acted on them, the Bible says even those attitudes are sin. And sometimes the Bible says the whole general disposition of our heart that gives rise to action and attitudes, but our basic existence as people who do not want to worship God itself makes us guilty as sinners. So that's what a sinner is. And then the question is, who's a sinner? Who are the sinners, church? All, all of us. Wait a minute, you're good church-going people, right? I mean, I'm at least assuming that. You try to be good people, you come to church, nobody forced you to be here, right? Probably. So, you know, <laughs> doesn't that count for anything? You know your Bible, right? All have sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of God's glory. And all means all. The religious people are sinners. The non-religious people, surprise, are sinners. The men are sinners. Ladies, don't get going too hard. Because <laughs> the women are sinners too. I know, I'm sorry. Maybe not as bad. I don't know. It's a subject for another day. <laughs> the older people are sinners. The younger people are sinners. The wealthy people are sinners. The poor people are sinners. People from all ethnic backgrounds. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody. It's a chapter and a half of the Bible in Romans chapter 1, the first half of chapter 2, are just trying to pound that point into our heads. Absolutely everybody. That's bad news. We're in trouble. You see, the false gospels don't have sinners. They don't have sinners. The performance gospel has well-meaning religious people who just need to try a bit harder. Follow some more rules, be more inspired by Abraham's example or whoever it is. The prosperity gospel doesn't have sinners. It just has poor people or sick people who want to be richer or healthier. But no sinners. You're not going to hear prosperity gospel preachers call you to repentance from your sins before a high and holy God. And the therapeutic gospel doesn't have sinners either. It simply has unenlightened people who need to understand the things that hold them back and be shown how much power they have within themselves to create a better life now. And Jesus is the guru that will help them along the journey. So when the Apostle Paul says in verse 15, this is the true statement, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In that one word, sinners, we see so much packed in there. We are guilty before the high and holy God to whom we are accountable. That's the setting and the problem. What's the solution? Here's the good news, thankfully. (laughs) This is where the news starts to get good. Christ Jesus came into the world to do something about it, to save sinners, to rescue. How does he save sinners? That gets us to the solution. The solution is saving Jesus. The solution is Christ, a cross and an empty tomb. We sang the solution two or three times already this morning, that God became a man so that He could die, that when Jesus went to the Roman cross, he carried mankind's sin with him. So that by dying there, he was paying the price for other people's sin, not his own because he didn't have any, but he was paying the price of a sinner as if he were one himself when he wasn't. It was a substitute death. He died in my place, paying a price for me that I deserve to pay. And friends, this is where we get to the absolute red-hot core of the gospel. 
If you're a Christian and you're explaining to somebody what the gospel is and you never get to Jesus dying in our place for our sins and some idea of what that means, we probably haven't gotten to the gospel yet. The good news is that we can be saved, we can be rescued from what? From our own guilt, from having to pay for the problem, our rejection of God Almighty. And how does he do that? How does he rescue us from that? How does he get us out of that? He takes our place. The God Almighty to whom we are accountable becomes a man to take our place. I can't get, I can't wrap my mind around that. Look at how many times I've heard it. That is absolutely incredible. The extravagance of God's generosity is mind-blowing. The depth of his love to pursue unwilling and undeserving sinners is, is immeasurable. It's, it's, it's unparalleled. The jaw-dropping depth of his mercy to sinners like us is so much better than we deserve that it's astounding. There's simply nothing in the universe that is as glorious, as amazing, I'm running out of adjectives, as vocabulary stretching, as the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done. The love of God is demonstrated in taking our place. If you compare that to a bit more money? A bit more comfort? A little bit of effort? Those things are disgusting in comparison to the glorious reality of the gospel. Friends have nothing to do with Satan's misinformation. It's nothing but fuzz and mud in the face of Jesus' glory and beauty and pleasure and life. Infinite joy, C.S. Lewis says, is what's being offered to us. One of the things I've always been impressed with the Apostle Paul is he never got over the gospel. Like, it never became old to him. That's really clear when you read his writings. And I've often aspired and even translated that into prayers many times. God, may that be true of me. Let me never get over it. Let me never get used to it. Or never let it cease to become compelling for me. Never let it get old and and tired because this is the most amazing thing that could ever happen. This is what verse 15 means when it says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He solves the problem. Jesus' mission was to save us or rescue us from our own bent to rebel against God. But there's one more point. There's one more point. Because so far we've simply described good news kind of in the abstract. Like God out there did this big thing out there that sounds really cool. But how does good news in the abstract become good news for me? There's a response that is called for. And the most common biblical words for it are repentance and faith. They're really two sides of the same coin. Turning away from reliance on myself which is simultaneously turning toward complete reliance on the finished work of Christ to cleanse my sins and secure for me eternal life. To turn away from my naturally sinful ways is what repentance means. Notice what we learn about repentance and faith just by looking at the Apostle Paul's example in these verses. I'll just point out a couple of things for the sake of time. First of all, notice that he points out specific personal sin in this passage. Uh, Look at verse 13. He says, "Uh, God appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent 
opponents. To blaspheme is to speak negatively, to talk down God because he looked at the gospel of Jesus and he called it heresy when that's the very truth of God. He was speaking down about who God was. And a persecutor, if you know the story of the Apostle Paul before he became a Christian, he was actively involved in trying to stop the spread of the gospel by forcible means whenever possible, including the arrest of Christians who would proclaim that message and ultimately even in a few cases, their execution, such as when Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7. Killed for proclaiming the gospel because that's what the Apostle Paul wanted. And he calls himself an insolent opponent. Notice he doesn't even just talk about his actions, but he talks about his attitudes. He's like, I was, I was insolent. That just means like this, you, when you're so arrogant, you have absolutely no respect for somebody else. And that's what he says I was toward God. I was so sure as a religious guy that I was right. And I was so confident that my understanding of things was true that I just looked at God and said, who do you think you are to tell me what to do? And I thought I was listening to God when in fact I was arguing against him. And I was blind to it because of my hot, insolent, arrogant pride. He's like, that was my sin. Notice it's not kind of vague. Oh, Jesus, you know, I am only human. I'm less than perfect. I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Amen. Let's move on. Like he's able to point to specific personal sin and say, that's what the sinner Apostle Paul looks like. What does the sinner Macarino look like? Well, I don't go kill people. My sin looks different, but it's still there. So he confesses specific personal sins. Secondly, he gives all the credit to Jesus Christ. Every shred of it, repeatedly. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with a faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He's like, the only reason I can trust Christ and the only reason I can live a life of love is because Jesus put that in me. He gets all of the credit and his grace that he didn't deserve. He just poured it out to me. It's all his generosity. And lastly, verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience. It's an example to those who are to believe. Jesus made me a trophy in his trophy case. <laughs> it's all his credit, so the people would look at it and say, if you can save the apostle Paul, you can certainly save me. And he says, that's exactly the point. It is all his mercy. It had nothing to do with me. That's repentance, and that's faith. That's turning away from me and turning toward Christ. Notice what repentance is not. Just quickly, repentance is not a vague belief. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. Of course I'm a Christian. Okay, what do you mean by that? The Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 19, that like if you say you believe in God, I mean, you know, good for you. It's a good start. But that by itself doesn't necessarily mean anything. After all, Satan himself and his demons believe in God. They know he's there, and it's not doing them a lick of good, is it? They're still destined for eternal hell. So what do we mean when we say, I believe in God? Well, I, I don't know. Well, we should know. He's laid it out very clearly. Repentance is not just a vague belief, nor is repentance growing up in a Christian family. Of course I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian all my life. My parents are Christians. That's fabulous, wonderful. But have you ever identified personal, specific sin, repented of it, and trusted Christ for salvation from it? 
that was my own personal story growing up in the home of Christian parents who were attending church long before I was born, and I practically grew up in that church, and by the grace of God, it was a church down in California that, that faithfully preached the gospel. I understood the truths of the gospel of Jesus from, like, when I was so young, I don't even remember. And I believed it, because that's what kids do. You believe what you're taught to believe. And it's not that that wasn't necessarily genuine when I was eight, nine, or 10 years old. It's just that it was an immature faith. It wasn't until I was 15 that I finally realized at that point in my maturity and development, like, you know, I need to kind of start thinking for myself because I'm sort of growing up. <laughs> and do I believe this just because it's what my parents have taught me? Or do I actually believe this? That was the summer of my, uh, just after my 15th birthday. And I decided, Jesus, I believe you because I believe you, not just because that's what mom and dad believe. And that's when I was baptized, which is a perfect time to be baptized. Because I, then I was able to say, this is the course of my life. Repentance is not just a vague belief in God or growing up in a Christian family. It's also not just acting like a Christian, doing Christian things, praying a lot, going to church. I've been a pastor long enough to have seen a number of people say, I'm done with my life. I need some God in my life, so I'm going to go to church. I'm like, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do. You tell me to attend, I'll attend. You tell me to join a small group, I'll join a small group. You tell me I'm supposed to be baptized, I'll get baptized. You tell me I'm supposed to pray a prayer, I'll pray it. And they're like just doing the things that Christians do in the hope that it'll somehow rub off. It doesn't work that way. Even if I say, you know, I, I've always gone to church. I pray almost every day, and I had very meaningful prayer times with God. You know, that's wonderful. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 27, you know, on the final day of judgment, there's going to be a whole lot of people who are like, Jesus, did I not do X, Y, Z in your name? Did we not do this and serve you here and help out there and do all the things we're supposed to do? And he's going to say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. It's a sober warning. But what a merciful warning for our Savior to give us. He's trying to blow away the fuzz. He's trying to bring the picture into sharp focus. I'm not a Christian just because I act like a Christian. I'm a Christian when I have repented from specific personal sin and trusted in Christ for my, as my Savior. One more. Repentance is not a vague belief in God, growing up in a Christian home, acting like a Christian, and maybe the most distinctly and uniquely modern American one. Repentance is not personally identifying as a Christian. It's not personally identifying as a Christian. I think of myself as a Christian, so therefore I must be one, right? After all, isn't that my choice to make? People go out and ask on a religious survey, how do you, uh, do you identify yourself with a major world religion? Still to this day, a little bit less than there used to be, but in this country, the vast majority of Americans, tens of millions of people say, yep, Christian, I marked that box. Why? Well, because that's how I've always thought of myself. That's what I choose to identify myself with. And in a day and age in which we can identify everything about ourselves, so we believe, even our very own gender and our purpose for existence simply by an act of choice and will, it's very easy to assume that I'm a Christian if I say so. But the Bible paints a different picture. Christ is the one who determines who a Christian, a Christian, is. You're free to accept that or reject that, but not to redefine it. Jesus says that we are Christians when there's repentance and faith. Friends, this is the gospel. You run into it over and over again in the Bible. There's a setting, a holy God to whom we are accountable. There's a problem. We're sinful. We don't want to be accountable to him. There is a solution. It is the saving work of Jesus paying our debt on the cross. And lastly, there's a called for response. Repentance and faith. All of this leads to being included in God's family, the indwelling of his spirit, and the promise 
of eternal life. This is the task that the church has been given by its Lord. This is the the good news that, that Jesus has given us to put up on that pedestal and show to everybody in not only what we say, but in how we act together. That's where the rest of the book of 1 Timothy from this point on is going to go. How do we put the implications of this into practice together as a church? But as we turn the corner and kind of head for home this morning, kind of wrapping up this first introductory chapter, let me just say that if you're here as an individual and you've never clearly repented from specific personal sins out of a conviction that it's wrong and you're accountable to God and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross to forgive you of your sins and secure for you eternal life, then friends, today is the day of salvation. God in his mercy is saying, come home, that's why I came. And may I especially encourage those of us who have been around the gospel and around the Bible and churches for a long time, but when we, and we, we recognize the language of the gospel, but we may not fully speak it yet. I, I can't really map my own life and experience onto that biblical grid. I'm not sure that that's really true of me then what immediately starts happening is we then go, well, but wait a minute. People have always thought I was a Christian. If I now admit that I don't even know the gospel, that's like embarrassing, and Satan just uses that as a tool to shut us down. It's misinformation and misdirection, but friends, there's nothing shameful about embracing the truth. And there's nothing to be embarrassed about when it comes to coming to Jesus Christ with open hands and saying, Jesus, I need you. All of my religious efforts and all the way people have thought about me is garbage. That's what the Apostle Paul was delighted to say. It's junk. I bring all of my reputation before you and just put it aside. I'm not banking on that anymore. I'm banking on nothing but you. Talk with a Christian that you came to church with today. Or grab myself, Jordan, after service. We'd love to talk to you about that. If you feel more comfortable, fill out a connection card. Just mark on that that you'd like to find out more about what it means to be a Christian. Drop it in one of the offering boxes in the back. We'll get a hold of you this week. Set up a time to get together and talk about it. And church, the gospel of Jesus is our charge. It's, it's our marching orders. Uh, that's been mentioned a few times in chapter one here already. Verse 18. This charge... I entrust to you, Timothy. The gospel, Christ Jesus came to save sinners, and here's how that looked in my life. He says, now I give it to you and make sure that it's being taught clearly and get rid of the people that won't teach it clearly and then bring the church together to live it out so that the gospel of Jesus is put up on a pedestal. And last week we saw in verse five where he says the aim or the goal of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. In both places he says, this is, this is our charge. This is our marching orders. This is who we are. This is what we do because this is what our Lord has given us to do. But you know what? It's not just cold marching orders. It's also the greatest gift you could possibly give to people in our community. Clarity on the glorious truths of the gospel. We live in a breakneck-paced society. It's expensive It's busy, and people typically, families in our society, in our community, are running around like chickens with their proverbial heads cut off, just trying to get through the next day or the next week. And then you add to that sort of breakneck pace that we live in the fact that we are up against a bewildering confusion of religious ideas. And it's no wonder that so many people are just like, yeah, the God thing, whatever, like, yeah, I I, I, got to go to work. (laughs) I got so many other things to do. 
And in that kind of a context, the best thing we can do for somebody is to put the gospel of Jesus up on a pedestal and let it shine. Let them let catch a glint in the midst of the fog and the intensity and the confusion. And the, what was that? That sparkled. That was amazing. I need to hear more about that because when you put the beauty of Christ up on display in how we act and what we say, he will draw men to himself. And after all, if they don't see it from Jesus' church, where are they going to see the glorious truths of the gospel? Father, we come before you as a pedestal that you have put into place to uphold this truth, very much aware of our uh, inability to do so and our failures at times to do so. But we pray for your forgiveness. We pray that we would live the truths of the gospel now as a church to your glory and for our good. Amen. We're going to celebrate and worship by approaching the communion table right now. Worship team's coming up. Feel free to receive communion as you come up.